0: And one point I really want to make it as clearly as I possibly can that trauma, regardless of what it's perceived on the outside, how big it's perceived on the outside, the important thing is about the impact on the individual.
1: Welcome to Unquestionable with your hosts Charles Paley Phillips and Sophie Green, where each week we dive into real and raw conversations with experts, creators, thought leaders and CEOs.
2: With our guests, we'll be exploring some of the unquestionable truths behind psychology, mental health and relationships to gain a deeper understanding of human nature.
1: So let's get into today's episode. I wanted to start by sort of asking you what inspired you to write the book in the first place.
0: Yeah, so um, my name is Dr. Merk Errol. I am a chartered psychologist and chartered scientist. And actually, the idea of tiny traumas, it's been percolating for for a long time, I would say, possibly almost sort of 20 years. Um, So when I first came across this concept of low-grade but cumulative trauma, I was actually um, preparing for a lecture. So I was in academia full-time for the start of my career. And we were, uh, offering a third year elective module of the psychology of physical illnesses. Now I appreciate that mind and body work together, but because it was an elective, we try and, you know, get the students, get those bums on seats or something that was a little bit sort of more interesting. And uh, each, each week we covered a different condition. So this week I was covering irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. And doing research, you know, what you know. what's the psychology in IBS, what's important, what's interesting. And I found this paper that looked at what is known as big T trauma. So the T is capitalized in trauma and compared it with little t trauma. So lowercase t, low grade trauma, what I call tiny trauma. So I was doing the research for... Um, this topic on irritable blast syndrome. And uh, in this paper, what was so fascinating in terms of the comparison between big T trauma and low grade little t, tiny T trauma um, was that as a psychologist, as a researcher, as a scientist, my prediction was that both this major type of trauma that we kind of understood and we understand, and even you know, even in sort of every everyday discussion, people understand that has such a significant impact. So my prediction was, yeah, this this lower-grade trauma, this tiny trauma, probably would impact individuals, um, but surely the big T trauma would have a more substantive, substantial, significant impact. And actually, the findings from this study just completely blew me away because what the researchers found was that both both types of trauma did impact both tummy symptoms and psychological symptoms, but it was a slow-grade tiny trauma that had a more significant impact over time than the acute Big T trauma. And that stayed with me for such a long time. It really surprised me and Actually, there's very little in psychological research that seems surprising. And um, I know that as, as psychologists, we often get criticized for just researching what seems like common sense. But, of course, it's very important to research. Mm. But it was like, wow, that that is interesting. And then later when I started my private practice, what I tended to see um, were clients that would come in. And they would actually just uh, outright say, look. I don't know what's wrong. I don't know what's wrong because I can't put my finger on it. Nothing that bad has actually happened in my life, like ups and downs. But I don't get why I really just don't feel okay. And I was like, this is really important. So did a bit more research, wanted to collate my findings and my practice, and. Actually, I feel it's time that we move to a more nuanced discussion of both trauma and mental health, and that actually we all experience a range of difficult events and happenings and and just, you know, stuff in life, and these things can have a very significant impact. Mm,
2: Absolutely. And just for our listeners as well, could you give a few examples of what you might class as tiny or small or or, uh, micro traumas? So that people can kind of work out if if they have, because I'm sure there are people listening who probably have tons of these in their lives, and and probably won't notice until you kind of maybe me mention. Absolutely,
0: some, and what's really things. interesting about about you know the, the label, it's quite a, it can be a difficult label because when you use words little and and, and small and tiny, it feels like you're d- diminishing what's happening. And one point I really want to make as clearly as I possibly can. That trauma, regardless of what it's perceived on the outside, how big it's perceived on the outside, the important thing is about the impact on the individual. So I had loads of ideas for the title of the book, like cumulative trauma. That seemed quite, you know, clunky or trauma stacks was another thing that I thought of about how it really is that build up of what I call psychological sludge over time. So yes, uh, things that I see in my practice on a frequent basis um, since the pandemic, a lot of moral injury. So that seeing something that's that's sort of happening to other people and you can't actually step in, and it makes us feel a whole range of emotions, but quite a lot of guilt that we can't actually help. It's it's very difficult um, for all of us because we're actually very compassionate as human beings, which is which is a wonderful thing, but that can have an impact too um microaggressions particularly at work so those everyday indignities and, and slights that kind of um uh sort of underhand sort of uh, secondhand second hand compliment type thing that that can on a frequent basis start to undermine people's confidence to such a degree that my clients will be like i don't know don't really know what I'm doing I don't even know if I'm gonna do my job anymore and when we unpick it a lot of it can be down to microaggressions um in terms of that study I mentioned uh, some of the sort of small low-grade traumas they they saw um misattunement in terms of the caregiver child relationship but what I would say is that so much focus of trauma is on early life early childhood and that absolutely is very pivotal uh, pivotal but the what what is important is that we can have a very nurturing a very loving childhood and we can then sort of um, come up against lots of tiny trawlers later on and they can still have an impact so it's not all about it's not all about childhood but what was found in a study is called misattunement between the parent and, and child in terms of actually your personality. So for instance, you may have very, you know, out you know, outspoken parents who are very, you know, extroverted, and you might be a little bit more of an introvert. And just that misalignment can over time, because it is over time, start to make you doubt yourself a little bit. And you could be that, that person, that kid, and then the adult that just never feels like they quite fit in. And it's difficult because that then impacts our feelings about ourselves, but also our behavior and how we then interact with other people. So it kind of is a bit of a domino effect in that way. So there are lots of examples and everyone will have their own unique constellation of tiny traumas mixed in with perhaps some big T traumas and perhaps some life events and as I say it is that kind of tip of the iceberg thing that you know others may see us functioning and you know going about our daily lives and able to work able to meet our responsibilities but underneath there can be quite quite a lot of sort of challenges but also Life can feel very effortful and just really quite hard. Wow, there's so much <laughs> that time picks
1: yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, um, how do how do these sort of tiny traumas mm-hmm. often manifest themselves? I mean, obviously, you talked about physiologically how they can come out in in certain maybe autoimmune diseases, or it could be like say IBS, something like that. What are the sort of yeah. typical kind of things you see? from your clients as it comes out kind of like a... From
0: a yeah, physiological absolutely. Like so I collated um, my most frequent presentations, what I call themes in the book. And so they include high-functioning anxiety. So feeling very anxious a lot of the time, if not all of the time... Um,
1: <laughs> it's me and Sophie. That- yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. And that thing is, is really common. It's really common. The difficulty is that it's still able to, as I say, to to work, to go about daily life and even to interact with friends and to do some hobbies. But it feels hard. It really does feel like, you know, sort of trying to... You know those nightmares when there's like a really strong wind and you're trying to walk and you can't quite walk. It's life is experienced like that. Um, and that's not very joyful and it, it's, it's, you know, it's not... A sense of flourishing. It really is a sense of kind of just surviving rather than thriving. Um, also, low-grade depression, but not even not even depression. Um, what I call emotional blunting. And so, it's not so much feeling low, but actually not feeling much of anything. So, in the sense that we've just blunted our emotions to to everything, and again, just zombie walking through life and not really engaging that much and then some other common presentations I see which I briefly mentioned imposter syndrome so particularly to do with with work so that feeling that you're faking it and that one day someone's going to find out Um, again really common uh, sleep difficulties I see a huge amount challenges with navigating life transitions so well, that may be sort of um, moving out of home or someone's moving back home at the moment. Um, parenthood also transitions to do with physiological things like the menopause as well, but just finding a, a sense of stuckiness, which I call being stuck. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the editor of the book tried to change that word to stickiness. And I said, no, it's stuckiness. We are stuck in between two phases of life. And that's, that's something that um certainly lots of tiny teas can can contribute to so a range of presentations but the common theme is again that another person even someone that might know you quite well might be surprised that you are struggling but there is struggle there
2: yeah and when you're of so talking about the difference between depression and like a kind of bluntness i know in the book you mentioned the difference between depressions sort of languishing is that a similar Absolutely. sort of thing
0: so if we think about mental health as being on a continuum and on one side we are flourishing so our mental health is you know is is really good to the to the point that we don't even think about it and Someone asked me recently, well, how would you define that? And I would say like, you know, good, good mental health. I would say, well, actually it's when you, you're not aware of it. You are just living your alive. Um, so flourishing at one end. At the other end would be um, diagnosable mental health conditions. So say major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. If you went to your GP, to your doctor, you would meet the criteria um, and be offered some form of treatment. But there's a huge area in between here. There's a huge area in between. So languishing and emotional blunting, that is edging towards this area of mental health problems, but you wouldn't meet the criteria for a depressive disorder because, again, you're still able to carry out your activities of daily living, as we call them. So you can meet your commitments, but motivation still would be low. So languishing in depression, again, think more in terms of a continuum than sort of very finite categories. If you're languishing, low motivation, often low in, in energy, low in that sense of, you know, really getting any sort of joy in terms of daily activities. But for instance, if a good friend asked you to come to an important event, say a birthday or a wedding. You would be able to do that. If somebody has a major depressive condition, it would be that actually that would be, that that wouldn't be possible for them in many cases. So you can, but it is like forcing yourself. It does feel effortful. Um, so similar. And again, this is where all lot of the confusion is because um, an individual might actually go to their GP and say, yeah, I'm low on motivation. I'm low on energy my mood is really low, but not meet those criteria. And then you'd feel a bit lost. So I see so many people that may have actually gone to the doctor already and not been offered that much, really. Um, And there is this huge area that we're not serving. We're not serving individuals. We're actually not serving the society, really, in terms of mental health.
1: Yeah, so I mean, you're saying that there's lots of misconceptions from medical practitioners as well as kind of us as individuals around well, tiny. I would,
0: say, I would say yes, and because psychology is a relatively new discipline, and you know it is evolving, and I think we've done really, really well to to understand mental health in the past couple of decades. I mean, so so well it has changed enormously, um, but we now do understand trauma. Um, we do understand. Um, mental health conditions but we tend to whenever we start looking at something whenever there's an area of investigation we naturally look at the most severe cases and then once we kind of get to grips with those we can then develop a more sort of nuanced comprehensive understanding of the spectrum of whatever the subject would be of interest So we've done so well to get to grips with very severe symptomology in terms of um, mental health. And now we're moving into, actually, that's a relatively small proportion of the population Um, growing, I have to say, but it is still a relatively small proportion. But we know there are many, many other people that are finding life really tricky. Mm, yeah. And I suppose
2: there are so many resources out there for people who suffer mm-hmm. these big traumas as well. And so, you know, if somebody dies or witnesses something horrific or is in a big accident or something, you know, there's there's steps that you can take tangible steps to overcome that and to deal with grief and to grieve. you know, everybody kind of at this stage knows the process to go through. But first of all, I don't think many people even know what tiny traumas would be. Um, I mean, for example, I thought it was really interesting that you mentioned um, witnessing other people going through things and feeling helpless to that as being a tiny trauma, because actually we kind of experience that daily with uh, social media and with documentaries and stuff like that. I mean, I'm a big true crime documentary fan. And so in some ways you're kind of traumatizing yourself every every day. Um, and I think that's something that not many people would understand, let alone knowing the steps to kind of overcome these things as well. But yeah, I don't know if you if you had any thoughts yeah, on that. Yeah,
0: absolutely, if you, if you can't, absolutely. Um, so um, without a doubt, because at, when we are sort of in a practical sense, helpless, we still want to be observers because we feel like at least then we're sharing, we're sharing what other people are going through. But. Um, what happens then is we, we um, don't give our stress response any sort of time to be able to reset. So certainly during the pandemic and now because news media is at our fingertips all the time, it is important that we would have a break from that. So I do a lot of work with people in terms of not not just social platforms, but news platforms breaking what is an addictive-like pattern to be able to give time for your resources to rebuild. Because if we think about it, when we lived in much smaller communities, we might see some of these very distressing events um, on, on the rare occasion, on the rare occasion. And yes, those feelings and all, all feelings are important. Um, those feelings would, would exist and we would be able to process them. When it happens, not just every day, but numerous times a day, Every day we are in a heightened stress response and we do know that chronic stress does have both a psychological and a physiological impact on our health. So it's really important to break to break that pattern. The thing about true crime, which is fascinating and like I, I, I'm a true crime lover too, but I do, I do have to <laughs> manage it because again, it heightens our stress response but we're waiting for a resolution and so it becomes like an addictive like pattern and there was some research out a couple of years ago that shows that watching true crime it triggered that reward center of our brains so that we want to go back for more again and again and again and actually in terms of like i think of it as kind of like fast food so you know what if you want to have you know a hamburger as a pizza occasionally that's really not going to do you much harm But that constant consumption of things like true crime or even news, it it is, we have to give our minds a chance to regain a sense of homeostasis, a sense of, of internal balance. When I say homeostasis, things are still going on, but it is in balance and not, you know, constantly be triggering that stress response oh that's so
2: interesting because I was literally talking to somebody yesterday about why we are so <laughs> obsessed with true crime and um, that makes a lot of sense I mean I for one I get sucked into these periods of my life where I'm listening to true crime, after true crime after true crime podcasts or watching documentaries and then it hits a point where I'm like oh I can't do this anymore I go outside and I'm walking around like what is life <laughs> you just kind of lose sense of all sense of proportion and reality and all sorts and you have to kind of get back to that homeostasis I guess um but yeah I was going to ask you as well I mean in your book and I don't know if I'm saying this correctly um generally when I'm reading and I can't say a word in my head I just kind of go <laughs> <laughs> but you can't do that on podcasts so you you speak about the emotobiome and I'm guessing like the emotional microbiome um I wonder if you could speak on that a little bit and what that is and how important it is yeah and,
0: so yeah. oh gosh I'm exactly the same and I'm really bad at uh, pronouncing <laughs> some words when I, when I was a kid I had a speech impediment so sometimes I get things completely wrong <laughs> but no the, the emotional <laughs> biome is, is is a word that I've created um I'm I'm a big oh, good, sort good. of a fan of let's let's just create things that that make sense and and work and so we, again, were so sort of knowledgeable about the, um, the microbiome. So we have microbiomes all over our body. We know a lot, a lot about the gut. So the gut microbiome and microbiota. And in terms of, um, and I did research in IBS, so I suppose that sort of played into this idea a little bit. Um, in terms of, we know that we have all that, um, all those, uh, Microorganisms, so bacteria. There could be um, other sorts of things, the gut flora and fauna that make up the microbiome, and we need it. We actually need it to survive. Seventy percent of our immune system is within the gut. So all these little microorganisms, they live within us, and they really they help us. They actually uh, protect our health. So um, what I thought was really interesting to think about that in terms of of the mind, in terms of feelings and emotions. And at the moment, I still think we're at the, the point in time, although it is changing, that we, there's a belief that some emotions are good and some emotions are inherently bad. So happiness, joy, hope, these are defined as good emotions and they feel good. They feel pleasant. But other emotions like anger, like frustration, like a sense of loss, they're defined as bad and they certainly feel unpleasant but actually just like within the gut where you have a mix of different sort of microorganisms these all need to live um, beside each other and they need to live sort of in harmony as it were and what we know about gut health is that we need a diversity of bacteria in our guts to be able to be healthy it's not that we just need good bacteria and we didn't used to think this is that we need different sorts to all live together, to give the spectrum of within the emotobiome of human emotion and human experience. Because what happens? When we demonize certain emotions, um, what we do is we don't allow ourselves to process and regulate those emotions. We are human beings, we will have those emotions if we push them down, if we try and push them under the carpet, they will come out in other ways. And it is often with these, what are termed maladaptive behavioral patterns that actually don't serve us very well, but can harm us. So some of the things I mentioned previously, but also things like emotional eating is a really big one. Um, Then just, you know, really um, finding it difficult to, to cope in life. And oftentimes it is because we're not giving audience to the whole spectrum of human emotions, and it doesn't mean to necessarily act on some of those emotions, but to allow yourself to feel them and to regulate them. We talk a lot about emotional regulation within psychology, and it really is about recognizing that emotion, what it's telling you about what you're experiencing, and sometimes acting on it, but acting on it in a way that is that serves you well and um, can help you within your life. Well, that's so good to hear. I think right now we're in a kind of strange period,
2: especially post-pandemic. I feel like quite a lot of people are going through this journey of working on themselves and trying to be upbeat and happy all the time. And anytime anything negative comes up or you don't feel great or 100% you kind of push it down, or at least I'm definitely guilty of kind of pushing it down and trying to focus on the good and the happy stuff. Um, so it's so good to hear that actually we we kind of need that and we need to address it and work through it in a in a positive way and so i suppose i don't know if you if you could speak on sort of like physiologically when these negative things come up because i've always associated for example if people have negative feelings all the time then that would lead to sort of ibs for example because it's like a stress on the body so is there a way that physiologically you can kind of work through these negative emotions and and deal with them in a in a positive way i mean i know we speak a lot about mm-hmm. like, meditation and stuff like this on this podcast so if you have your steps that you would recommend people to kind of working through these uh, tiny traumas yeah that come so
0: up. within the book and within my practice i created a three-step process and it's called the triple a process and the a stand for first of all awareness so being aware that tiny traumas are a thing and that they are notable Um, But also being aware of, as I say, your individual sort of constellation of tiny T's. But then awareness um, is really important, but we need to, to move on to acceptance. And I would say acceptance can often be one of the hardest stages. And what I see in my practice is people who move either directly into the final stage, which is action, or jump from awareness straight into action and miss out that acceptance piece. But awareness and acceptance are incredibly, incredibly important as the foundation, but we do need to take steps. So um, oftentimes psychology can be, can be criticized for, for people just kind of ruminating on what's happened to them. And that's not really how psychology works in terms of psychological therapy and intervention. It is about having that awareness, but moving to positive action that really can help you to be able to recognize those tiny traumas, but to to use them for for your your own, you know, for your own psychological toolkit and turn them into coping strategies. So in the book, and again, I think probably because of my, my research, I, I did look at quite a few different health conditions in my my early career, IBS and chronic fatigue and lots of things that seemed quite at the time, were medically unexplained, so we were looking at, you know, you know, what what contributes to these conditions. So I often use um, a comparison between mental health and physical health because we we understand physical health at the moment. Um, we're just a little bit more advanced in terms of that than mental health. So I equate a psychological immune system to a physical immune system, and of course, since the pandemic, we we've talked a lot about immunity. And we we're all born with an innate physical immunity from from our moms um but then we need to have challenges from the environment to be able to build up physical immunity so like you know little kids you you know they pick up all the bugs and they' are growing their physical immunity and they're developing antibodies so that when they come into contact with that virus or with that pathogen again, their bodies know how to protect them, they know what kind of um what kind of fight to to really be able to, to engage, to protect, to protect the individual. It is the same in terms of psychology. So we are born with an innate stress response and we need that innate stress response. We don't need it to be triggered all the time. But if we didn't have a stress response, then we wouldn't have survived. We wouldn't have evolved. Because what it does is when there's a threat or even a perceived threat in the environment, we are able to react so much quicker. our our vision is laser focused. Glucose is released into our muscles, so we can we can fight, or we can run, we can flee, or we can freeze. And that has, in terms of human history, allowed us to to stay alive. Now, our physiology hasn't changed very much, but in terms of the world we live in, it's changed tremendously. And so, as we said before, we're very much activated in terms of this stress response, but we do, we do need it. That in itself isn't enough, though. So if you think we're born with that innately, we do need to have some challenges psychologically to develop our coping mechanism. So say if, if, you know, at school, we fell out, we fell out with a friend then that can be really upsetting. But if we kind of use it as a way to think about, yeah, those feelings those feelings perhaps a sort of rejection from our friends they are absolutely valid what can we do to think about how to use this experience and over a lifetime when we've had those challenges but when they're framed in that way that we can use them for a psychological immune system then when say more significant things happen like you say say perhaps the death of a loved one which is going to happen to us all we will have a toolkit a psychological toolkit and loads of coping mechanisms to be able to manage. It will still feel hard, but we will be able to cope. And I'm asked so, so many, so often, how do we avoid tiny traumas? Well, we don't. We don't avoid them. But what we do is we build up our coping mechanisms so that we know, we know in ourselves, we can trust that we will be able to cope with whatever life throws us.
1: Now, we touched on that a little bit, I guess, earlier, and we've obviously talked about uh, watching true crime and stuff, and I just wondered, we feel it feels like we're living in a very heightened period of time with social media and stuff. Have you found from your experience that you're getting more people coming through your door because we are more heightened generally? We, we have 24-7 rolling news. We have social media. You know, on a daily basis, we're kind of, wanting our dopamine fixes and i wondered if that is having an effect on our mental health
0: without a doubt without a doubt Uh, i would say again i would be cautious of demonizing social media i mean demonizing technology it is a tool um but we um we kind of need to educate ourselves about how we use it as a tool and how it doesn't use us because it has advanced so quickly we're kind of um being you know really being the subject of 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 technology rather than being in charge of it so in my clinic one of the um one of the techniques i use i do a four week uh sort of um digital detox for people and it is surprising at how um impactful that can be to, to mental health but also because it's this is like this is tiny traumas, kind of in a nutshell Because it's gradual, it's so insidious that we kind of don't realize what an impact it's having until we start to break those patterns. So without a doubt, if social media and technology and to say even news consumption, if it is consumed mindlessly and without intentionality, it can certainly have an impact on our mental health. So it's almost like um, having a a bouncer or a a
2: a guard stand guard outside your your mind as to what it lets in kind of thing so it's not it's okay to let some of it in but really you have to be a bit more mindful of what you're in, mm-hmm. in ingesting is that the right word i do
0: I, it's another death? type of consumption i would completely agree with that and to be mindful of it to to make a active decision about the kind of information we want to consume it is just like food as i say we wouldn't consume fast food three meals a day every single day. So again, what are we going to choose to consume in terms of information? Um, and we can spend time curating the type of information we do consume, but also put actual time limits on it. And again, something I see every single week in my practice are people really struggling and will say, I just, man, I just don't have any time. I don't have any time. Like, dad asked me to do it. I don't have any time. I was like, yeah, I hear it, I hear it, but let's do a time log and let's see where the time is going because we d- we do have time. It's more fractured. It's what is called time confetti and I just love that phrase. So it's fractured, but what we tend to do is when we have little pockets of time, we fill it with scrolling, we fill it with social media, we do fill it with reading a couple of, and I'm, I'm very guilty of this, reading a couple of news articles. So we can make a choice. What could we fill that time with that is really supporting our mental health and there's a range of things so certainly moving our bodies around is so very important there is some amazingly robust robust research that shows that even 10 minutes walking outdoors reduces stress it also is a buffer against low mood and some future bouts of depression so very important but really just giving the mind a rest like just let the mind wander just do some doodling there's some amazing research on doodling which i love and to have those moments of even boredom because some of your most creative sparks happen when you're actually really bored
1: yeah this is a conversation i have <laughs> regularly with my children um, who who can't cope with boredom i mean literally like you know because they're just so used to being switched on all the time you know they're digital natives they just used to having mm-hmm. devices of various sorts and any moment of boredom is really impactful they find it very very difficult and I, I keep trying to say yeah look, it's really um yeah it's really a great time to, to like you say free your mind to mm-hmm. different ideas and stuff I mean I've I've been guilty of this as well like I'll be standing in the queue in the post office and I'm straight into like reaching yeah. for my phone in my pocket and I'm thinking, mm, I should just be sitting here, like taking everything in, yeah. listening to conversations, watching what's going on. But oh, we are absolutely. all guilty, to...
0: absolutely. It's, it's... But again, it's having these conversations to to increase that level of awareness. That one, we all are doing it, but we can take steps to to change what we're doing. We do, we do have that um, agency in our lives. And firstly, taking those moments just to people watch. I don't know about you guys, but I just love people watching. Um, and it's just fascinating and it's, it's very different than, than watching something behind a screen. Mm, Yeah. I've
2: noticed as well that my attention span is just shocking now. And I think that social media and these kind of like short form, um, short form content that comes out now is so bad for my concentration. I mean, I'm literally just scrolling and scrolling. And now I've realized that if I get an email that's more than like two or three words, I just, I'm like, oh, God, I don't have to for this. I can't read a whole sentence. God, I don't have enough time. But actually, throughout the day, I'm probably wasting hours accumulatively just scrolling through social media or sitting on my phone and doing a jigsaw puzzle. It's it's absolutely crazy.
0: And I think there is now starting to be a real sort of pushback that like we realize that it's, it's not the way that human health. Works. And again, it is a tool, and you know, it's a pendulum, isn't it? So, in terms of technology just swinging to one side, and I feel like it is swinging back a little bit, and we're awareness that it's important to be more mindful around it and to use it. So, it really does serve us, and and we're we're not just um, reacting to every ping and in every message. And again, in a social media detox, I would always advise the first port of call is to. To remove um, apps that you don't really use, and make a decision over which ones that you do want to engage with, but then time restraints on that, and and unless unless you do have a, a job that is sort of life and death to so turn off a lot of those notifications, and so when you have family and kids, um, to to have an agreement that there will just be one one platform that you will um, contact each other with with emergencies and. And what's really interesting is when we turn off some of those notifications, so many of the messages and so many of the emails that would have seemed really urgent, they resolve themselves. They really do resolve themselves. And again, it's very freeing to see that, but it is just taking the decision to to do that. Mm, yeah and, and i guess
2: giving yourself permission to to not feel like you have to be switched on all the time um i was i was also going to ask you a, a little bit you speak about in your book um this idea of sort of being perfect or perfectionism and i know you you also talk about um in that chapter which i found quite um quite a juicy sort of title uh, the dark triad kind of personality type. So i wonder if you could talk uh, on that a little bit and and what that, what that is, what that means for us in general and in terms of so our mental health. So in
0: terms of perfectionism, um, we, can, we can split it up into what is adaptive perfectionism. So where we're actually striving to have high standards serves us really well. So perhaps that's something to do with work. Perhaps it is something that is also important in your life, like taking care of your loved ones and your family. The difficulty is, is that we tend to, as human beings, when something works in in one uh, situation, in one area of our lives, so we tend to then transpose it onto every area of our life. And actually it becomes maladaptive then because we cannot be perfect all the time. Um, and striving to be perfect and being perfect are, are two different things, but that striving is where it becomes really, really hard. But again, I would say, you know, where is the variety um in life if you're always trying to be absolutely perfect? but again, just working with with you know people as they are and coming to people as they are, which is so important, it is okay to say, actually this bit of my life, I really do want to strive and to be as good as I possibly be, but I don't have to do it in all these other areas, and just giving that freedom, giving that freedom. When it becomes maladaptive is when we do not give it ourselves a break and when we're really harsh on ourselves. So I just see it, like, literally every single day um, clients, and I certainly had this for a long time. I would say that I'm a recovering perfectionist as well because it, it is a process. Um is that having that really harsh inner critic that just criticizes every single thing you do, every single thing you do, and goes over these tiny little, um, what we might think of mistakes, but they're not really mistakes, they're just things that weren't quite as perfect as we wanted to be that no one else would notice, like literally no one else would notice. So in terms of perfectionism, again, I think in a way it's been very demonized, like there's all this pressure to be perfect, and now there's all these messages to say, just don't be perfect it's like okay well I just want to be perfect but how do I do that it you know it's just it's so it's so confusing and conflicting but say you know what I can I can have really high standards here but let go there but in general in terms of that inner voice the question would be is that inner voice is it critical or is it compassionate oftentimes it's very very critical and to just turn it to something that is a bit more compassionate. And a way to do that is to just think, would you ever say these things to someone you love? So that voice inside of your head that's talking to you, would you say that to someone that you cared about? And if not, what would you say instead? Really sort of simple trick. But it's, it's a habit. So like all habits, we need to aim to replace the habit. Um, and that can take time. So to have that little bit of patience with it too. And again, not to criticize yourself for having that inner critic and for not being able to be compassionate immediately <laughs> is, is a real king to it. But in terms <laughs> of which has had so much attention within both psychology and within the media of the, the dark triad personality. So that's a mixture of uh, psycho psychopathy, of um, narcissism, which is a huge theme at the moment, and, um, make it, see, I'm I'm not gonna be able to pronounce this one now. It, <laughs> I can't pronounce it now. I've got my tongue twisted.
1: Take your time. Take your time.
0: We can yeah. edit this out. It's fine. <laughs> see, it's, oh, right. it. Mac- Machiavelli- yeah, see,
2: Machiavellianism. It's. Oh, right. Machiavellian. Yeah, see, once I get
0: twisted on something, it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> But I don't mind because we're human beings, <laughs> you know what I mean? And we all have we all have butters. It's totally fine. Exactly.
1: Don't don't worry, don't let your right. be perfect driver interfere
2: so with it.
0: Exactly. You wouldn't say that to yourself. <laughs> yeah. So it's where these three personality traits meet. And and the important part here is that they are personality traits. So again, they're all a dimension. Um and for for a long time there was a lot of attention to these that if somebody had these three traits. So being quite Machiavellian, but also being quite narcissistic, or scoring highly on these scales and then also scoring high on psychopathy, which at the moment we don't really call it that so much anymore. It's more termed as um, anti-social uh, personality disorder within that scale. But what I would say is that we, we almost became quite stuck on this and thought that these people that had these personality dimensions were very much um, aggressors in terms of uh, trolling was a big one, but in terms of actually um, things like verbal abuse and bullying and victimization and these sorts of things. And what was really interesting when I was researching the book is, yes, without, without a doubt, Um, there is some research to support this but when it comes to tiny traumas it is actually quite rare a dark triad is actually very very rare but what happens is that people can exhibit these these facets of personality in certain circumstances so being behind a screen um and sort of getting involved in group what is bullying really online especially platforms like twitter and just all piling in all piling in and more recent research has shown that anyone can anyone can engage in this and it's more to do with your current mood and with what's going on in your life so if this happens, one, it gives us really important information about how to prevent and manage these behaviors. But two, it really shows us that actually we're all a bit more similar than, than we are different in that way. So it's interesting to see how psychological theory in terms of personality theory has evolved And I would say that even if somebody, say, scores highly on these facets, or just one that is, as I say, talked about so much in terms of narcissism, it is open to change. It is absolutely open to change. We can tweak our personalities with our experience, but also with psychological therapy and intervention. And that was something that was really new in the past decade because we thought that personality was very much fixed and it's open to change
1: i wanted to ask you about um neurodiversity and tiny traumas and how those two things interlink and um there's things like now people are talking about which aren't diagnosable things but things like rsd which is rejection sensitivity disorder dysphoria which can be very much incumbent with things like adhd and autism um and also that kind of feeling of you know if you get a diagnosis with a neurodiversity and later in life you can kind of peel back some of those earlier traumas that you might have had around Mm -hmm. feeling different or, you know. So I wondered if that was something you see a lot of um, and if, you know, there are things you can be aware of going forward if you are starting to Mm -hmm. go through the process of finding out if you've got a neurodiversity.
0: Certainly seeing more and more. Um, And in terms of peeling back those layers, the understanding that a lot of the tiny traumas, the intention um, of perhaps another person or even perhaps of more sort of macro level tiny traumas might not have been hurtful. It might not have been to cause you harm or those psychological wounds, but it has. And that's okay. So to distinguish the intention from the impact is really, really important. And when we do that, we can let go of some of that anger that does sort of uh, is generated often when we sort of recognise a lot of the tiny traumas, um, and to be able to move on with that and and to to have that sense of acceptance. So we we can't change our past, but we can accept where we are right now and use that information to to move forward. In terms of individuals going through that journey towards diagnosis, it can be incredibly challenging. And what also can be quite challenging is post-diagnosis. So having a diagnosis, and then you kind of feel, what now? What now? Because and it's so validating, and it's incredibly important. But we do need to help people a little bit more post-diagnosis. And there's lots of there's lots of conditions, and there's lots of what we would call sort of sub-optimal. So they may not meet the criteria of say ADHD. But actually, people have symptoms and how to support these people, how to help people support themselves, but also to have a much more adaptive discourse around neurodiversity is incredibly, incredibly important. And I would say it's exciting, though, as well, that we're even having these conversations. And, you know, we've We've we talked a lot about technology, but one thing about technology is that it's allowed these conversations to exist. It has given people um, you know, a, a voice in a way that perhaps many of us didn't have before, and it's so, so very important. So to carry on the conversation, to know that we're not there yet, to definitely know that we're not perfect in terms of our understanding, but that we are moving forward. We really are in these ways. Um, and to allow allow the scope of human experience to to really exist
2: yeah I suppose this it's great that we're sort of moving away from an you know a time when these sorts of things have a stigma attached to them as well and I'm I know I've spoken to a few people um, just recently about uh, the idea of potentially having some diagnoses such as ASD and stuff like that that people are reluctant to get diagnosed with because of that stigma and surely the whole point of being diagnosed with something is so that you can then overcome the obstacles and and use that diagnosis to harness your neurodiversity and to um, figure out ways that you can kind of self-regulate better and feel generally better in your day-to-day life um yeah, it it feels a little like a little bit scary. Um, I don't know if you agree with that. The idea of being diagnosed with something like ADHD or something um, like that is quite. Well, quite I scary.
1: guess for some people, it is confirming that mm. feeling of feeling different, mm. um, which is obviously one of the things mm. you're trying to sort of tackle. Is that you know that, that 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 especially when you start to look back at maybe how you were in school, for example, you might look at your school reports and say, "Oh, Giles was always distracted." Uh, you know he always is chatting other people maybe you had those things from, not like,
2: much has changed then.
1: No, <laughs> um, but you know like so that you know you get and then you start to sort of buy into that feeling of of you know that kind of loneliness I guess you get around so Being, as
0: human beings we are meaning making machines if if we can't find a way to make meaning um we we will find another sort of label to put on it and often the label is very unkind to ourselves so diagnosis can really help with that because it actually it gives us that template and things just when you when you see people who have received confirmation of their experience and all of these things fall into place it really does allow a sense of acceptance which is just so very important but what I would say that a diagnosis isn't always a sort of panacea. It, it doesn't sort of magically make everything okay. It's, to, it's still part of a journey. If someone is reluctant to go forward with a diagnosis, it, it's up to them. And, and they uh, you know, should take the time to, to be able to make the decision to do that. Um, and in terms of if there, there is conflict with that, I would look at some of the self stigma because we all we all stigmatize ourselves a little bit too, and what what are the um, correlates to that? What are the factors associated with that? What are the tiny t's around that self stigma? Um, and as I say, it won't necessarily be right for everyone. So whether we should we should be supportive of people seeking a diagnosis, should should we be pushing people towards diagnosis? No, no, no. Um, and it would be what's right for the individual but as long as that support is there that's the most important thing
1: yeah absolutely um just to finish off i mean it's always good to have like a kind of call to action at the end of these kind of things obviously people <laughs> should buy your book um so which you know time dr mcgarrell we definitely need to go but a couple of things are there some sort of staple easy to do kind of tools that people can put in place and also are there some things you could suggest for developing awareness again your own tiny traumas and maybe those of friends loved ones who you might feel have been through lots of tiny traumas and you want to help them in some way
0: so absolutely absolutely um i have a question a sort of psychological question that i use in with every client i have but also it's in the book and it is to reflect and what I would encourage people to do is to, is to write down, to engage in some emotional writing. There's a huge amount of research that shows the benefits of helping us process what we've been through, but also to process emotions if, if we write things down on a, on a piece of paper with a pen, so not on a computer because it allows more time. Um, so the question is to, to bring to mind an event or an experience and try to focus on one rather than a merging of events, bring to mind. Something that affected you deeply, profoundly. Um, and it may have changed the way you feel about yourself or it may have changed your view of the world, but that actually part of you feels like isn't important enough to mention. <laughs> okay. Have you got one?
1: No.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you have. No, well, I don't know. I've got, lo- I've got loads. <laughs> Go on, you do yours, and I'll think. Oh, I didn't know we were sharing. Mel. <laughs> uh, okay. Now I need to think of one that's appropriate to bring up on the podcast. Share if you feel something that's happened really important. So, so one thing that I am always thinking about, just in in my own journey, is how uh, friendships and relationships have such a huge impact on how you view the world and how I view myself. And, you know, when I think about trauma, I think of like those big heartbreaks that you have or the big breakups that are so hard to get over, but actually going back to sort of my my first boyfriend, for example, when I was 18, 19, sort of like a kid, well, I was probably maybe a bit younger, but, and some of the silly little things that now looking back as an adult, I'm like, oh, that was just, you know, silly kids, you know, we thought we were in love, blah, blah, blah. But actually probably shaped how I view men for the rest of my life so that I think that might be my one doesn't feel it doesn't feel like something I would ever need to like talk about in therapy or journal on uh because I was so young but actually now looking back it's sort of like oh if I got lied to then my view of men is that oh well men lie or whatever yeah. it, it might be
1: yeah I think for me like I'm a terrible overthinker and a people pleaser so I think there's probably a, a numerous amounts of subtle moments in a conversation or something you might do that you feel like you stepped over the line and that you that I will just think about mm. kind of forever those moments when you're in bed at night mm. and you're having flashbacks to all the horrible things yeah, you think exactly. you've ever done
0: exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: but, which aren't horrible things but you know because most of the time they've come from a good place or there's a pure intention behind it but to you you feel like you've made an impact on someone else so I think probably for me it's having impacts on other people in a negative
0: and, way. And some of these you know memories bring out feelings of guilt and shame those are generally the ones. Um, I'll give you a few examples as well that that can help. What's really interesting as well is well as doing um life hacks with Radio 1 the callers which are you know young adults oh my god they're like ding 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 have, you know could really easily bring these to mind i think as we get older we do sort of self, self-stigmatize self in a way that, no, it isn't important and I mustn't talk about it. And-,
1: and do we? Do you think we push these things down as well? Like, you know, yeah. you said about stacking. Oh, oh, It feels like probably there's lots of things if we really thought about it, we could probably read oh, off. Understand. But we're like, no, nah, no, nah, we'll... Keep it down. Put it back and in the box. What
0: happens yeah, is yeah. there's always that little piece of straw that breaks the camel's back, and then we'll think, "Oh my god, that wasn't such a big deal. Why? Why am I? You know, why mm-hmm. am I burning out, or why am I feeling like I'm almost having a breakdown?" And it's because underneath, well, in the stack, and I still like that title as <laughs> Choma Underneath is all of these other things that have built up. So, um, a client of mine. Um, she had really, really bad acne growing up, like really quite serious acne. And she said, yeah, at school it was difficult. But when I posed that question to her, um, the reply was, that what really affected me is when I went to see the doctor, the doctor said, it is so severe and it's the worst case I've ever seen in my career. And that affected her so much because she was like, oh, it really is that bad and it really affected her confidence more so than some of the low-grade bullying at school there was that but more so it was like this is an adult this is someone who was qualified and they are staying it's that bad that then affected her behavior so she didn't date um and it affected her life course in many many ways and again in terms of Another person viewing that experience, they may think, oh my God, it's not that bad. But for that person, it was impactful. It really was. Another one that really, that really sticks with me a client who was um, very high achieving, but on the verge of burnout, very, very high achieving. And uh, she said, Look, Meg, I, I just can't stop. I cannot stop working these crazy hours at this level, at this speed but I know I'm gonna fall off the cliff. Um, so it's having that awareness of what was happening, but maybe not the awareness of the tiny teas. And again, nothing was that bad, like, you know, my parents loved me, they were really supportive and they are why I'm as successful, um, and that's an inverted comments. successful as I am. So we unpicked it and what had occurred is when she was growing up, um, to motivate her, her parents had uh, taken every report that she had a bad grade. And it wasn't, you know, even really that bad from someone else's point of view. But when she had a low grade and pinned the reports in the living room and never took them down. So there weren't that many, but she grew up seeing these negative comments. Wow. To the point that as an adult, she could, she could not not strive for that level of perfection and it was leading to some very significant both mental and physical health symptoms for her but again the motivation from her parents actually she did achieve good grades of school she did achieve an amazing um classification of degree she was at the top of her career earning you know a very high wage so in that sense, it worked. And the intention from the parents wasn't actually a you know a negative intention, but the impact had negative consequences. And again, it's these little things. And what I would encourage listeners is to take the time to reflect on some of these things and to try to just put judgment aside. Judgment will come in and just nudge it aside. You know, nudge it aside gently. It can still be there because if we try and just, you know, if we really try and push it under, then again, it has the same impact. Nudge it aside. And there's an exercise in the book that is called life mapping. And it is simply, um, again, I really encourage pen and paper, just drawing a line, starting at your date of birth and throughout your life course and noting down things that were meaningful to you and to draw on the top of the line things that you experienced as being positive and below the line things you've experienced as being negative and seeing how your life course has panned out because we just tend to not actually put things in this kind of order but our brain as I say we're really making machines our brains really want that clarity and again you might unpick some things that perhaps because of just at the moment, and it is changing because at the moment we do engage in what I call reverse misery trumps, where someone has it worse off than us. So we're not we're not going to reflect, and we're not going to give ourselves the space and time. But just to allow that space and time to do that and see see what comes out. Mm, so
2: important. It's yeah. it's funny. It, There's such great examples that you give as well because it it is making me think back to my childhood and little comments that people particularly primary caregivers say offhandedly that you then take like carry with you in some way in your life. In a similar way to when somebody that you love says something nice about you when you're a child, you probably end up having quite good self esteem in that area for the rest of your life. And I mean, I think we we both have suffered some quite extreme traumas in our lives. And so I don't know about you, Giles, but I personally don't really have much time or energy for the tiny traumas because i'm like wow there's nothing compared to the
1: big ones yeah exactly (laughs) yeah
2: well yeah there's that but also you do tend to judge and and even in others as well you know if you if you see someone that's you know moaning about something that's quite inane then you do if you have gone through something quite big in your life you kind of
1: I think, to, yeah, yeah. I think in those moments, I always think everything's relative to that person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it is, is hard sometimes to it do. It is,
2: that. yeah. It's, but well, I have to catch myself doing it because sometimes I'm kind of like, well, you don't, you don't know anything. <laughs> but it is that you know everybody's stuff is valid, and yeah, we all we we're all going through things constantly, and it all has an effect. So I think it's that's why I was so you know so excited about talking to you about your book because I think. Not everybody goes through these huge traumas of, you know, physical or sexual or emotional abuse or, you know, terrible tra- childhood tragedies or anything like that. Um, but one thing we all have in common is that we do have these tiny traumas that pop up constantly. Um, and we're constantly trying to sort of reconcile with that, I and, guess.
1: And I know now we're just going to go and have some lunch. We're going to be talking about all these things that you <laughs> yeah. just told us to do. We're gonna be like looking through all our uh, old our, I old moments. Well, that,
0: um, <laughs> there are there are big traumas and there are big life events, and and they can be incredibly challenging to to deal with. But what we can do in terms of the smallness here, the tiny traumas, is we can work with um, some of the techniques and coping mechanisms, coping mechanisms with those smaller traumas, because it's like any sort of muscle. And so we can start off small and we can start sort of growing that coping muscle in that area that then will allow us a bridge to be able to reconcile, as you say, to manage some of that bigger trauma. So in that sense, it can be incredibly useful to start off with those smaller steps.
2: Mm, that's a great point actually it's kind of like letting some steam out of the pot if, if the pro, if the big stuff is almost too big to tackle head on by looking at some of these smaller things it's kind of helping to Absolutely. get to that point because I
0: guess. If, if, say, if say there was a marathon that we needed to run you know we would start by daily training by you know working with our fitness level and being able to you know work up to those longer runs. It's the same in terms of mental health and psychology. Let's start where we're at and let's be patient and somewhat gentle. And we can do that by looking at the smaller things in life and 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 taking those smaller steps and knowing that we are actually increasing our psychological fitness to be able, to be able to perhaps um you know, really look at some of these bigger things and they're still there. They are still there. But having that patience and and really having that sense of self-compassion when someone's experienced trauma self-compassion can be really challenging really challenging so starting off you know small
1: yeah well meg thank you so much it's been so enlightening and uh, such a great chat with yeah. you and I've, I've, there's so many takeaways i've made copious amounts of notes um so thank you so yeah. much it's been great to talk to you about this um, and uh, yeah
2: where can people find you as well if they want to so sort of learn more about you? The website is
0: drmegarrell.com um, Handles on all the socials: uh, Dr Meg Arrell, And the book is available at all sort of online retailers and in physical bookstores in Waterstones too. Yeah.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you, thank you so much. You. Thanks for your time, thank and you know, yeah, so it's much. been great. And
0: it was lovely to meet you, Thank you
2: for listening to Unquestionable. We'd love to hear from you on social media by searching for Unquestionable Podcast. Don't forget to
0: like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.